0: Hello and welcome to this week's CC4 Museum of Welsh Cricket Podcasts. I'm Stephen Hedges. This week we're returning to well-known territory with another interview in our series Where Are They Now? And this week our Jan Grey is talking to ex-Glamorgan and Gloucestershire left-arm seamer and latterly renowned sports broadcaster Alan Wilkins. Okay, so our guest this week is Alan Wilkins, who played for Glamorgan between 1976 and 1979 before moving to Gloucestershire, where he played until his retirement in 1983. However, he is better known in the global cricketing community as a stalwart of television cricket commentary. Before we start, I would like to recommend to anyone listening that they read his autobiography, Easier Said Than Done, A Life in Sport, which captures Alan's comforting yet enthusiastic and engaging broadcasting style. So, hi Alan, and thank you very much for joining us.
1: Hello Jan, Uh, very good to be with you, and um, at the end of a long summer, but uh, what a good summer it's been.
0: So, I know you go over this in detail in your book, but briefly for our listeners, what originally got you interested in cricket?
1: My father. Um, My father was a a superb cricketer, uh, who actually was on the Glamorgan books, played for Glamorgan, but because of the war, and because, you know, he was um, a serviceman coming back from the war, jobs were more important than cricket and he had to get a job. And so his cricket, whatever professional aspirations he had were put on ice. He never played professional cricket. But just being with my father when he was captain of Cardiff Cricket Club, Cardiff Cricket Club had a, a very strong team in those days. Welsh cricket, Welsh club cricket was very strong with St Fagans, Newport, Cardiff and all the associated clubs. And my father captained Cardiff four or five uh, times. I went on to play for Cardiff and through school really, through Wichich Grammar School um, became high school in in later years. But um, I had enthusiastic teachers. My father was enthusiastic, although he never pushed me beyond my comfort zone. and it all be- became a, a, a way of growing up and growing into cricket. So, very much my dad. My mum was incredibly supportive, making sure that I turned out in the whitest of flannels with creases down the front of the trousers and uh, starched collars. So, e- even if I didn't um, uh, do the bit, I'd probably look the part. But those early years were very informative, very school based very family-backed, and they were some of the greatest years I've enjoyed, you know, from a young lad. And uh, how did you end up playing for Glamorgan? Well, I think um, you could talk to a lot of people about this because it's it's a progression. You come through Cardiff schools and then you do well at, say, under-15 level, under-13s, under-15s, and then you're getting into quite serious cricket because now you're mixing it with with the biggest schools you know swansea and uh, newport baysleigh uh, you know this Neath nice grammar school all these schools it becomes a, a much bigger pond and then you start playing for wales under 15s wales under 17s under 18s and you go through that pattern and i played at every level but i was always a year younger than the rest because of where i my age my um my birthday was late August 22nd of August so it missed the year of catchment Uh, it's too long to explain but uh, um, it meant that I was always playing with and against uh, fellows who were older than me Uh, and I probably used that to my advantage they were quicker they were bigger and they were probably more skilled but your, your question how did I play for Glamorgan well you you come through that process of Representative schools, Welsh secondary schools. We played England. You know, we played Millfield School. We you you play against the MCC. So you, and if you do well in these representative matches, the county catches your eye. And then I went off to Loughborough. Um, we had a very strong Loughborough Colleges, Loughborough University team. I did well there as a bowler. Probably got some runs as well as a bat. And uh, but. Um, I did play well there for Loughborough against county sides, against the MCC, um, played for the British universities. And so if you keep yourself in the shop window, as it were, your county will always know where you are, what you're doing. And that's really how it came about. And eventually I was offered terms by Glamorgan, by the great Wilf Wooler. I can't remember what the money was, but it <laughs> it wasn't a lot. But money didn't ever enter my head all I wanted to do was wear the daffodil of Glamorgan and really play for the county uh, which I'd supported all my life I mean from from the age of well, I don't know five six seven when my dad started taking me to the old Cardiff Arms Park I never played on that ground that's where Cardiff Rugby is now um Sophia Gardens and, you know, Tony Lewis, Peter Walker, Alan Jones, Ivian Jones, Malcolm Nash, Tony Cordell, uh, Roy Fredericks, Brian Davis, all these great players. And eventually, one day, I ended up playing with them. So it was almost like a bit of a dream, really. And that dream realised itself. It did come true.
0: And what are your best memories playing for Glamorgan?
1: Up and down, really. Um, I think the best was obviously the season of 1977 when we, uh, and this was the year I came out of university. So it was my, it was half a season for me. Um, I came out and took 47 wickets in, I don't know, July, August, just over two months. So everything went well for me. I I, I couldn't you know even just thinking back to those matches that I played wasn't just the three day county championship we were never really in contention for that Um, but it was the Gillette Cup of 1977 and we had amazing matches against Worcestershire against Leicestershire and previously before that against Surrey and then in the final it we didn't quite do it against Middlesex at Lords, but uh, that was, I mean, that was just memorable. I mean, we were this close, so close to to becoming Gillette Cup champions. We didn't. Um, Middlesex won that. Um, I think, you know, playing against the touring teams, playing against India um, in 1979 in, um, in Swansea, I got the great Sunil Gavaskar out, bowled him round his legs. I mean... I, you know, pinch myself now. And I always rib Sonny these days because I work with him in the commentary box. And I said, was it just sheer pace, Sonny, that uh, accounted for that wicket? <laughs> he ribs me. He said, you were too fast. I, I had to get out of the way of it. <laughs> but those were great days because the touring teams put out strong teams. New Zealand was strong. West Indies were strong. Uh, Australia was strong. Um South Africa had, weren't touring at that stage yet because they were still out um, out of the family uh, or the fold, if you like, of international cricket. Um, but every season was a highlight for me because it was always that privilege to wear that beautiful jersey with the daffodil right in the middle. So when you ask for highlights, I wish that we could have done better as a county championship team. We never really hit the high spots there we had we had good days we had lots of bad days um but by golly it was fun I mean it was such a lot of fun and you know I I wouldn't change a thing I I I would not change a thing Uh, I might have probably have changed um oh gosh if I could have got a few more runs because I knew I could bat but ah that's gone that's all history Mm -hmm. I might have changed a few things there
0: And then uh, uh, eventually Mike Proctor tapped you up to go and play at uh, Gloucestershire. How did that uh, experience compare?
1: Yeah, good question. Um, You you know, I think when you're playing professional sport, you have to. I mean, looking back in in hindsight, I know that, I mean, I had high standards of myself and I also had high standards of the club, Club Glamorgan, and I wasn't being selected I did have a difference of opinion with Tom Cartwright about a a number of things. I liked Tom. We got on, but we, we also disagreed on many things. And as much as I felt Tom was a great mechanic of a coach, mechanically, he was, he was sound. He was very good. I I didn't feel Tom's man management was his strong suit. And I was left out of the team and, and I was getting wickets. I was performing, but I was left out of the Glamorgan side um, in that season of 79. And I was told by the then club chairman, Ozzy Wheatley, and we get on well now. I mean, this is all in the past, but I'm not afraid to discuss it, that I was getting a little bit too emotional with the game. I mean, what the heck does that mean? If you can't be emotional about playing sport, I mean, look at Virat Kohli. Look at England cricketers now. Look how emotional they get. You have to get emotional playing sport. If you're not emotional, you're detached. Tell a professional footballer or tell a professional tennis player not to become emotional. So I felt that the argument was just n- not worth discussing. I was, we were playing, Glamorgan were playing Gloucestershire at Cardiff. I was 12th man carrying drinks. And Brian Brain, who was a very fine fast bowler with uh, Gloucestershire, he tapped me and he said, it was a bit like a sort of a, a gangster around the corner. He said, uh, listen, the gaffer, he wants to talk to you. I said, who, Mike Proctor? He said, yep, he wants to have a word. Why aren't you playing? And I said, well, I'll, I started to tell him, talk to him. This is when Glamorgan were in the field and I was the only Glamorgan player at, at the balcony the old Sophia Gardens. And he said, He'll be ready for you in five minutes. Well, I I knocked on the dressing room door. The two dressing rooms were virtually next to each other. It was ridiculous. But all the Glamorgan boys are out in the field. I wasn't carrying drinks for a while. And there was this massive cricketer, this Adonis of a cricketer, tanned, sitting on a, a table, blonde hair, great-looking guy, shoulders, massive shoulders. And he just said in that clipped accent, why aren't you playing?" Why aren't you out there bowling? And I said, because I'm not selected uh, captain. I, I couldn't call him Mike. I, you know, I had this reverence for Mike Proctor. I said, I don't know. I said, it's at, it's really making me very unhappy. He said, well, don't be unhappy. We need another bowler. Why don't you come over to us? He said, you know, a lot of the boys. And I did. I knew Andy Stobbold. I knew uh, David Graveney. They were good friends of mine. Andy Stobbold was at Loughborough with me. So was his younger brother, the late Martin Stovold, and he said, Brian Brain and I will open the bowling. You'll be first change. Three-year contract. Don't even think about it. Just come over and play. Well, I mean, I was smiling. I had the biggest smile in Wales probably for weeks because I felt that I was getting shortchanged by Glamorgan. Perhaps I should have discussed it with someone at Glamorgan and said, look, I've been offered... Is this deal by um, Gloucestershire because technically it was illegal for another county to poach a player whilst he's under contract with another county but I kept it to myself spoke to my dad he didn't want me to leave Glamorgan but I felt I wasn't getting anywhere with Tom and Tom Cartwright and I went away for the winter And during that winter, I played for a a province in South Africa called Northern Transvaal. I played against Natal, KwaZulu-Natal, for whom Mike Proctor was captain. And I bowled pretty well against them. And he said, you're going to have to come and play for us. He said, you can't go back to Glamorgan. And that was it. I signed for uh, for Gloucestershire for three years. And it was another chapter. So it was just a process of evolution. In a way, you know, I didn't want to leave Wales. I didn't want to leave Glamorgan. I left with a heavy heart. I really did. But this was a chance to go to Gloucestershire to play for one of the great, great players, Mike Proctor. But then I discovered that grass is not always greener on the other side. And there's another story from that. Well, I had two good years with Gloucestershire. 1980, I took 54 championship wickets. In 1981, I took 52 championship wickets. So it was 106 wickets in two seasons for Gloucestershire. And I wasn't always selected in the the first team. I was left out there as well. And maybe I was trying too hard. But in that 1981, I took my best figures at Old Trafford against Lancashire. It was in September. Um, 26.5 overs, 10 maidens, 8 for 57. I'll never forget it. And it was a great, great day. And I felt that I was, I was what, 28 then? I, was a, I, I, would, I wouldn't say I'd arrived, but I felt that I was part of a team that, that appreciated what I gave to it. I then went away for the winter and in my again to South Africa and I uh, I started to feel a little bit of pain in my shoulder just a little bit of pain but because of the beautiful climate in South Africa and I was swimming every day I was training I never thought anything of it came back in April 1982 to go back for my third year for Gloucestershire and in the nets, which was so cold, oh gosh, it was cold. Um, my shoulder packed up. It suddenly just, I lost control. It was like driving a car and I, you had no control over the steering. The car just did what it wanted to do, and my shoulder was not responding. And um, well, to cut a long story short, I had a shoulder injury which required a manipulation, which was a dislocation. There was a lot of, Uh, scar debris, the shoulder was worn and torn, and it needed rest. But instead of rest, the management at Gloucestershire, because I was on reasonable money, (laughs) um, said, we want you playing, you've got to be playing. So against the surgeon's best wishes, uh, not just his uh, instructions, I actually got out onto the park for Gloucestershire way ahead of the medical prognosis and my shoulder packed up um, once again in May. And I did not bowl a ball in first class cricket in 1982, having taken 106 wickets in the previous two seasons. It was it was a horrible season. I ended up playing a handful of matches for the second 11, but you don't want to play second 11 cricket. You want to play in the first team. Um, It had an effect on me personally. My marriage was falling apart. I then went back to South Africa um, because I felt that the heat, the sun, the swimming, and proper rehabilitation would help the recovery of the shoulder. It did recover. And during my time away, Glamorgan made a very um, unusual approach. They We started talking again about my coming back to play for Glamorgan, which maybe looking back was probably not the right thing to do. But I came back um, having had three seasons with Gloucestershire, but only played in two. And I came back to Glamorgan. But that was a, a personal issue as well with, um, you know, Personal issues were very much at the fore. So it was a roller coaster of a ride where good things were happening on the field, off the field, and then your whole world comes crashing down when you have an injury that threatens and did in the end truncate my professional playing cricket uh, career.
0: And how did you then move from your early retirement to broadcasting?
1: Well, in 1983, when I came back to Glamorgan and I signed a, another three-year contract, um, in fact, the very first ball I bowled, I took a wicket at Cardiff against Essex, Brian Hardy, and the, ne- the, the, the Western Mail the next day said, you know, it was said, prodigal son returns. Oh dear, oh dear. <laughs> and that became a long season because I didn't take many wickets, I wasn't quite in the frame of mind i perhaps i wasn't the bowler i was perhaps a certain amount of the al- uh, elasticity of the joint uh, because i did have natural pace I, i'm you know i'm not tall i wasn't a physically um, imposing person but i had good action and the ball came out well when it when it did come out well and i became by about midway through the 1983 season disenchanted Mike Selby was our captain. He had been released by Middlesex. I, and I, as much as I liked Mike Selby, and he was a damn fine cricketer, beautiful bowler, and an unusual captain in many respects, but I felt that my head, my passion, I just felt that not all the stars were in alignment. And my heart wasn't in it. My heart wasn't in it. And I just felt that I thought I should be doing something else. I didn't want to coach. And one um, afternoon, sort of three quarters of the way through the season, BBC Wales, and they covered a lot of Glamorgan cricket, BBC Wales radio, and and there was BBC Wales television. But BBC Wales radio said, well, if you're not doing much, and I wasn't really, (laughs) um, come and sit in the box, come and do a little bit of radio. And I loved it. You know, I put a pair of earphones on. I, I had the microphone and I thought, oh, I, I, I fancy this. I like this. Plus the fact that back in South Africa, a good friend of mine, Trevor Quirk, um, was in radio and television over there. And we played cricket together for Pretoria High School Old Boys. And I always said to him, look, I think I may be giving cricket up. And he said, well, if you are. Let me know. And we'll try and see if something can happen with the SABC, South African Broadcasting Corporation. And that is what happened. I did a, I did a demo tape. Glamorgan were playing Derbyshire at Swansea. I was playing in the team and I went up to the top of the St. Helens Pavilion. I did a piece with the radio mic and I did, I, I think I was pretty awful, but I was nervous. Um, and it was being recorded back at base in Cardiff, in Flanders They recorded it. And, uh, and I literally had the tape in my hand, put it in an envelope, sent it off to it. The SABC in Johannesburg, they listened to it and they said, well, if you're coming back this way, we may look at using you. There was no job offer. But what I did at the end of that 82 season, I knew that I'd finished with cricket. Two more years of contract. Um, left for me to play for Glamorgan but in, in my head I packed my boxes, I packed my I packed my personal belongings. I went off to Johannesburg to play cricket for the Wanderers and my sole objective from there, which was the end of 82 was to join the SABC, which I did in January 84. And that was the start of my broadcasting. And what do you think has made you such a
0: successful broadcaster?
1: Well, (laughs) you'd have to ask a few people that question um, because, you know, in this game of broadcasting, you can't please everyone all of the time. You know, there are people who like Nasser Hussein, There are people who who like Ian Bishop. There are people who don't like Nasser Hussein, And there are plenty of people who don't like Alan Wilkins. I can tell you that. Um, I, I think... The, the question of success is obviously one that that's a, it's a subjective opinion that, you know, I left to go and live in Singapore in February 2000. I've obviously moved on a few years here, but I had 12 great years with BBC and two with ITV. And then for the best part of 16 years, I was living in Singapore, based out of Singapore. Imagine having a job offer Where the managing director, Rick Dovey, an Australian who's become a good friend, rang me. I was here in this country and said, What's your tennis like, Matt? And I said, uh, Sorry, that was an Australian accent. And uh, I said, Oh, it's fantastic, you know, completely lying. And he said, Right. He said, We want you to present Wimbledon for us at Wimbledon. And he said, And your guest for the fortnight will be the Indian legend and icon, Vijay Amritraj. And I said, are you pulling my leg here? Is this real? No, mate. He said, you've told me your tennis is fantastic. So now you're (laughs) doing it. That was the start of another chapter of me being based in Singapore. So I did tennis. I did Wimbledon, the Australian Open, um, the US Open. I did cricket every indian tour away from india cricket world cups i did rugby i did golf i did all the golf around the asia pacific region and when you've got a company that backs you i'm coming back to the question of your you asked me about success i think when you know that you've got a company that backs you that supports you it's reciprocal and you give back to the people who are supporting you and those were some of the greatest years of my life that um They're still very much in the forefront of my memory. I do write about this um, in my book, Easier Said Than Done. But I think it's getting to know the players of India initially because we had a contract with the Indian cricket team. We covered the Bangladesh cricket scene in Bangladesh. Uh, We covered Sri Lanka. We covered uh, ICC World Cup tournaments, under-19s and then the women, but of course the men throughout. And in latter years, I've been going to Pakistan. And, and, and you know, and I think possibly because I'm uh, one of the more experienced uh, commentators out there, you develop a rapport with players, with coaches, and it's trust. It's trust. I was a professional sportsman. I'm not going to sell them down the river for a cheap story. I've always told people, Jan, that I'm... Um, if, if you ever described me as a journalist I'd say no you're wrong I was never a journalist because I was hopeless journalist because I never told the truth really about someone if I if someone was a friend of mine and had an injury and he asked me not to disclose it I would go on his side um, but I've always talked thought of myself as a sports broadcaster so I think an answer to your question and it was a long answer I'm sorry um, you respond to the company and the broadcaster who supports you and puts you into the shop front. And you respond by doing a good job. And that's and that's how it's come about for me.
0: You talk there about (laughs) how you can't be too sensitive because it's very subjective how people perceive you. Do you think that your... I don't know, it it seems in your cricketing career that you had uh, the bravery, I guess, to stand up to people who you thought were doing you an injustice? Do you think that being able to stand up for yourself is actually a very important part
1: of your broadcasting? Yes, it is. And that's a very good question because you have to stand your ground. You know, in cricket, I I stood my ground in the Glamorgan dressing room. I mean, I I finished, came down from Loughborough with a 2-1 degree. I felt, you know, I, I felt so good about my personal self, my, my being, you know, if my cricket career came crashing down, I had this degree in sports science, physical education with a history um, and the 2-1 honours. I was, I was really on top of the world. Cricket was, I just felt cricket was great. But I had opinions and I wanted to voice them. And I think possibly why I fell out with Tom is that he wasn't that keen on, I don't think he was that keen on people Coming out of a, an educational, an educational institution like Loughborough, wherever it was, and, and then having a voice, having an opinion. We clashed, we clashed, but I was never going to back down. And he he did pay me, great respect. Once we were, at Egber in Liverpool, Liverpool playing. We were, <laughs> we were playing um, Manchester. Um, what am I talking about? We we're playing Lancashire, and. We got talking about this very subject and he said, you remind me of someone. And I said, who would that be, Tom? But he said, well, you don't. you're not quite as bright as he is, but you you, you do stand up and um, you want to be counted. And that's Mike Braley. And I thought, well, I couldn't have gone much better than that. And I said, well, I, I thank you for that, Tom. No, he said, I'm not saying I approve of it. He said, I'm just saying that you, that's that's who you remind me of because you keep coming back at me, you keep coming back. And I said, well, don't you prefer that? Wouldn't you prefer an exchange of thoughts? Um, so that was a, a topic that, a thread that went right through our relationship through Glamorgan. And if you fast forward that to... My time now in, in, in cricket, in, in broadcasting, you've got to back yourself. If if you go to an in, imagine trying to interview Tiger Woods, and I've had the privilege of doing that, or Roger Federer, and once again I've had that privilege. And if you if you're sort of a bit meek and mild and you and you haven't done your preparation, then these guys are going to walk all over you. You know. Serena Williams is fairly formidable to firstly stand in front of. And if you don't quite know her mood or what makes her tech, you've got to back yourself and get someone like Djokovic. I mean, if he comes off, if he's in the wrong mood, you don't want to be standing right in front of him, but you have to be because that's your job and the people at home All we are as broadcasters is we're the the eyes and the ears of people at home who can't stand in front of Djokovic or Federer or Nadal or Murray, whoever it is, and we're asking their questions. So you have to back yourself. You can't be a shrinking violet. But at the same time, you don't want to detract from the person. It's not about you. It's about them. It's about Djokovic. It's about Serena Williams, you know. Um, so there's a point where you you meet with an interview or an interviewee, and if you go above it and think you're more important, then you've lost track. So yeah, it's important to stand your ground.
0: So, would you say that role as a sort of conduit between the audience and the, the sports team or the athlete is the most important
1: part of broadcasting? It's one of them. If you listen to if you listen to good broadcasters, good commentators, you feel comfortable because they are imparting knowledge. Nasser Hussain, Mike Atherton, they impart knowledge of the game. They were both England captains, and they have this ability to impart their pearls of wisdom to the viewer. Not everyone is is a club cricketer or a former test cricketer. You have housewives. Whose daughter or whose son might, might be a junior club player, so they're listening to the broadcast, whether it's on television or radio. You see, sometimes I don't think we understand this word broadcast. We have to broadcast, we're not narrowcasting. You know, NASA could narrowcast to former test players listening to the broadcast on Sky Sports, but he doesn't. He opens it up. And it's important. The conduit word that you used is absolutely right. We are the eyes and the ears. And over time you develop a trust with the viewer or the listener, which is why some broadcasters have been in this game for so long. Richie Benner was decades, the former Australian captain. People loved Richie because one, he showed no bias. You know, he was Australian, but he was, he was down the middle and it's important to convey that to viewers and to listeners that you are unbiased. Okay, you're going to get excited. I mean, if I was doing a Glamorgan match and they're in the final, I'm naturally going to get a little bit excited if they win it, like they did win the LV Cup. I wasn't, I wasn't um, on that. I was a bit disappointed maybe that I wasn't, but that's another story. But I was listening to it and I was watching it, and so. We have to be um, the conduit, we're there, we've got the best seat in the house, but people at home expect the best analysis, the best interpretation of what's happening, and we have to be that conduit. You're right.
0: And what role do you believe that plays in uh, maintaining the health of cricket around the world?
1: Well, it's being truthful. Um I mean, that's not to say that everything you watch is a bed of roses. It's not to say that every cricket match, oh, this is fantastic. Oh, this is the best women's cricket team I've seen for ages. You have to be objective. If it isn't as good as you think it is or as good as a previous match, then you have to appraise, evaluate, assess. But the one thing that you mustn't do if a match is petering out to a very boring draw, the last thing you say is, oh, this is really boring. Because if you're going to do that, you might be right. It might be a boring draw. But if you're going to do that, then what possible hope have you got of your viewer at home or your listener at home saying, oh, God, he thinks is boring. So why am I listening? Why am I watching? Kerry Packer, the great Australian TV mogul, once rang the commentary box. There was a red phone in the commentary box. It was the packer phone, and somebody—it's uh, it's folklore story. Somebody said, "Ah, this is this game's just going nowhere. It's a waste of time." And he rang the bat phone, rang, <laughs> and he just said, "Get him off, or get him to say." there's plenty to play for otherwise our audience is turning on to watch a film so it's entertainment we're in the business of entertainment as well we have to entertain so we're entertaining viewers we're enter- entertaining listeners and we have we have this obligation to the game we're former players and we ha- we're custodians of the game and if i'm doing it through broadcasting some players former players are doing it through coaching some are doing it through administration and some are doing it through different avenues all supporting cricket but mine happens to be through the avenue of broadcasting so we are custodians of the game and if and we have to leave the game in a better place than perhaps where we we got into it and i and that really in the back of my mind that thought is Always, always there. Always.
0: I was wondering, your book was published uh, three years ago now, I think. And you said about your time in South Africa that under apartheid, that uh, you believed your sporting endeavors were separate from the political situation and that they weren't directly mixed in your mind. But I guess since the last 18 months with the Black Lives Matter movement and a number of the civil rights uh, movements gaining traction in the wider world. We've sort of seen how intimately sport and politics are linked. Has this caused you to reevaluate your thoughts about your time in South Africa since then?
1: No, I'm not um, not, uh, reevaluating that time. I went out there with a very open mind and What I tried to convey in the book was was this. The governing body of cricket in this country was then called the TCCB, the Test and County Cricket Board. And what I felt, and other cricketers, Martin Moxon was another cricketer, Neil Radford, um, another cricketer, who uh, I'm trying to think of all these cricketers. You see, in the winter, we had no employment. The counties employed us for five or six months. And in the winter, they said, off you go. So obviously, we went to warmer climes. We went to, I never got to Australia. I always went down to South Africa. And once you establish a rapport with a club, that's what happens. When I got there, yes, I realised there were inequalities. I realised that. But there were things happening at the club, at the Wanderers Club, where we tried to encourage a mixing of colour um, in the sport, it wasn't always easy. Of course, it wasn't always easy. But what I tried to convey in the book was the fact that we were being pilloried by Sanrock, the South African national, the Olympic movement. Um, and A lot of us were put on the blacklist for having played and gone to South Africa to coach. But my opinion was, that all these massive British companies like Barclays Bank, ICI, Pilkington Glass, Unilever, Shell, which is a Dutch company I know, but all shipping companies, huge industries, um, big, big companies were still trading, still on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. So multi-billion dollar companies were still carrying on. Nobody was saying a word against that. And yet here we were <clears throat> earning virtually nothing. I mean, my I was earning beer money, that's all it was. And I felt it was good for my cricket education to be playing in the summer, uh, in the winter, the British winter, and to come back. Bring it all back to 2021. Michael Holding is a very good friend of mine. We've had this discussion. Ian Bishop is a good friend of mine. We've had this discussion. I went to South Africa in the apartheid years. I've explained my stance. And they are more than happy how I conveyed my own thinking, my mind going back those years. We had... We had no guidance from the TCCB. They just said, no, no, you can go down there. There's no problem whatsoever. But the bigger picture was already beginning to develop. So, in between this, in 1994, when I had come back from South Africa, the SABC asked me to, invited me to host the return of the Proteus South Africans to cricket after 29 years, 1965, their tour was the last South African cricket tour to this country. And in 1994, it resumed. And I hosted that, that that decision went through a South African uh, Broadcasting Corporation board. And it just wasn't a white board. Uh, There were black representatives on there. And it was, it was agreed. So I felt, I felt that I was, I had learned, I had learned about South Africa. I went with an open mind. I wanted to go. And I felt that some of the things I did down there, um, coached, coach youngsters. Yes, mainly white youngsters, but there were black youngsters as well. I got involved in the, um, in the schemes run by Ali Bakr, Dr. Ali Baka, uh, about taking cricket into the townships. I got involved with that. Uh, he used my experience of, and contact. So Ali had, uh, it was run by a biscuit company. Um, i trying to think of the name of it now, but we went into the townships. We, and it was the start, and it was the start of new thinking about widening the net. Um, that included people of all color and all races. And so I look back on that period. I don't, how, how can I regret it? Uh, I don't regret it at all. And I would be prepared to stand up to anyone. If anyone said to me now on the street, you were wrong to go to South Africa, I would engage that person on a, in a conversation about my reasons for going. And, uh, you know, when I came back here, I had the Welsh anti-apartheid movement. They were so anti-me, um, being employed by the BBC. There were picket lines at BBC uh, Wales in Llandaff, which I had to walk through. Um, and the Welsh anti-apartheid movement was very anti-me, rightly, because that was their way. Um, they believed that I was wrong to go. I met with a number of their representatives actually went, burst into the doors of one of their offices, and just I said, look, we, we should talk. Let's talk about this. And I think generally we probably never saw it off the same script, at the same page, but at least we had an exchange of thoughts. And I have friends. Nobody, nobody, has, um, nobody has shunned me in my life because of my journey to South Africa. In fact, two of my closest pals, my closest pal probably in life is um, a a fellow called Baron Bedford. I was at university with, Um, but I mean, (laughs) Baron's a colored boy, he's a black lad. And we shared room together at Loughborough and I actually rang him before I went. And I said, Baron, I'm thinking of going to South Africa. Would you have any objections if I did? Now he said, of course I do. Go and find out, go and see what it's like. I don't know what I would have done if, if he said, no, I, I don't want you to go. Maybe I wouldn't have gone. But Baron said, no, go, go there. Another great friend, and we spent time in broadcasting together, is Nigel Walker. And Nigel had our chats about different things, and one of them was South Africa, but time had moved on then. And one person's name I'm leaving out of this was, uh, did you know that during the apartheid years that... Uh, Arthur Ashe, Arthur Ashe, the great black American tennis player. He went there in 1976, um, went there for the lucre, went there for the money, went there um, and they lured him down there. Um, And by all accounts, it was a lot of money. But I can tell you hand on heart that I did not go down to South Africa for a lot of money. In fact, it probably cost me money to go there. I might have done well driving a baker's van around Cardiff than, than going down to Joburg. They were learning years. They were years where I learned so much about myself, learned about uh, global issues. Um, but the short answer to your question is no regrets at all about going there.
0: Now that's a very thoughtful answer. Thank you. Um, and then so coming back to your career, um, what would your uh,
1: immediate future hold, do you think? Immediate future. Um, My immediate future is uh, the IPL in uh, the United Arab Emirates, because in this game, broadcasting, you can't look too far. I'm a freelance um, contributor. Um, And so unlike when the days when I was uh, engaged, contracted to the BBC or ITV, uh, ITV Wales, BBC Wales, you know, you could look ahead and say, right, In six months' time, I'm doing that. I know I'll be doing this, but no. So you work almost like a month ahead if you can do that. So I've got the IPL coming up, followed by the ICC Men's T20 World Cup. Um, And that'll be a number of weeks away from home. Uh, Virtually all my work is away from home. Unfortunately, I don't work uh, in this country. But the trade-off from leaving these shores to go and live in Singapore and see the world. The trade-off is when you come back, you're out of the psyche, you're out of the thinking of people. And people say, weren't you that fellow that used to work for BBC or ITV? Yeah, um, Alan someone, yeah. So that's the trade-off. And you lose your place. You lose your place on the ladder. But would I have changed that? Goodness me, no. So I'm looking ahead to the next few weeks of Cricket in the Sun I'm I'm so looking forward uh, to to working again because this summer I've been home since May the seventeenth, May the sixth actually, when the IPL was suspended. I was in Ahmedabad in Gujarat. Before that, the PSL, the Pakistan Super League, was also suspended when I was in Karachi. So I'm looking forward to getting back in the saddle again.
0: No, that sounds great. So thank you very much, Alan. It's been a real privilege for me because you've been one of the voices of my childhood. In fact, so. Uh, Thank you very much for giving up your time.
1: Jan, thank you very much. Thank you for your questions. You've got me thinking uh, a great deal there. Uh, Good luck in your career as well. and uh, We'll meet one day. Thank you, Jan. Ah!
0: Thanks to Jan for bringing us another great interview and to Alan for giving up his time for the podcast. As we move towards autumn and winter, we'll be reverting to try and bring you an episode every fortnight. So join us again in two weeks when we'll be talking to Tony Cotty and David Braley about the book they wrote together about Tony's sporting career. Both of them will no doubt be full of stories about the great game of cricket in the great country of Wales. Bye for now. Roeth gyda chi stori yw'r rhan ni gyda ni. Mae croeso i chi at gmail.com. Neu ewch i'n Facebook, Museum of Welsh Cricket Podcast. Neu i'n tudalu Twitter, at Welsh Cricket Pod. Do you have a story you'd like to share with us? If so, please contact e-mail mwcpod1921 at gmail.com. Or go to our Facebook page, Museum of Welsh Cricket Podcast, or our Twitter, at Welsh Cricket Pod.